Hey, creep. It's felt like forever since you and I were able to talk. And to be honest, I missed your company. A lot of you keep leaving five-star reviews, and I've seen an astonishing number of you sharing this podcast with your friends, and I have to say thank you. Five-star reviews and sharing this podcast are so important if we want to grow our little family. As I begin telling you today's tale, I'd like you to sit back, relax, plug in your headphones, or blast this in the car. My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Let us, just you and I for a minute, pretend the year is 1934. You've just eaten dinner with your family and it's time to relax. You aren't going to watch television, though, because those aren't in every home yet. Instead, you turn on the radio. You're in luck. Your favorite detective show is playing. Your parents don't understand why you give yourself nightmares, but nothing makes you happier than being warm and cozy after dinner, sitting on the floor, listening intently to your pulpy radio show. Dad and Mom are done with the dishes, they've poured themselves a drink, and they sit down in the living room with you. Your dad, like all dads past and present, insists that you turn the trash off and listen to real news. You give a groan as he stands up, out of his chair, and starts tuning the radio. For an analysis of today's news of the European situation, Columbia now presents H.V. Kaltenborn. You're not listening anymore, but if you were... And if you lived in or around Cleveland, you might be hearing about the latest vivisected body found around the seedier parts of the city. If you were listening, you'd be horrified. You'd think that the detectives always get their man, though, because you've listened to every detective or mystery drama on radio, and the detective always gets their man. But unlike the radio shows you love so much, the detectives in this case... They wouldn't get their man. The case of the Cleveland Torso murders would be unsolved as long as you live, and future generations would still be wondering who was the butcher of Kingsbury Run. Cleveland in the 1930s was growing, and unlike most of the U.S., and despite the Great Depression, industry was starting to recover, attracting people from all over the Midwest with the promise of work, and Cleveland was quickly becoming a melting pot of laborers looking for work in steel and manufacturing industries. People had lost their homes and life savings, their safety and security due to the stock market crash in 1929. But industry was recovering and those living along Millionaire's Row were thriving because of it. In contrast to the few that lived along the city's Millionaire's Row, there was Kingsbury Run. The run was a dangerous place. Many poor lived in terrible conditions. It was often described by locals as a hobo jungle. And if Kingsbury Row was the mother of Cleveland's poverty-stricken, wrapping its filthy, loving arms around its children, its denizens, then the neighboring district, the Roaring Third, was the alcoholic father, providing all manner of vice to the downtrodden in the area, including brothels, gambling dens, and bars. Kingsbury Run is an ancient riverbed 
To the north of the run is Woodland Avenue, and to the south is Broadway Avenue, and between these streets was the run. A filthy, dark, and desperate place in the 1930s. This is where the dispossessed of the Great Depression lived. The streets were filled with trash and filth, and dominating this dystopian landscape were shacks. And by shacks, I mean homes. The makeshift shelters of transient workers who would ride along the rails into the city looking for work, or away from the city trying to escape the brutal winters that claim more lives each year than any serial killer. This city filled with both economic promise and heartbreaking reality for transient workers, was the backdrop for the brutal murders of 13 people, of which only two were positively identified, and to this day these murders continue to be some of the most gruesome and thought-provoking in the history of the United States. On September 5, 1934, a young man was walking along the shore of Lake Erie, and I can only imagine when he awoke that morning he did not expect this day to take the traumatizing and gruesome turn it did. Washed up on the shore was the lower half of a woman's torso, thighs still attached but amputated at the knees. Her skin was red and leathery from a chemical preservative. Police began investigating the area looking for the rest of the unidentified woman's body. Some other body parts were found but not her head, and to this day she has not been identified, not been able to have the dignity of a tombstone, no place for family members to remember her. Instead, she became a being of macabre legend, only referred to as the Lady of the Lake. On September 23, 1935, two teenage boys came across something they'd never forget. While fooling around near the base of Jackass Hill, these boys discovered the decapitated and emasculated corpse of a man. The body was naked. All that it was wearing were a pair of socks. The body had curiously been cleaned and drained of blood. Around the wrists of the victim were rope burns, and it was determined that the cause of death had dramatically been decapitation. Unlike the previous victim, investigators were able to identify the man by his fingerprints. 28-year-old Edward Androzzi. Androzzi was a hospital orderly and a regular of the Roaring Third, rumored to be where he'd look for male companionship. A taboo in the 30s and had an arrest record. Because of this, police had his fingerprints, which ultimately allowed them to identify the man. But on that day, this wasn't all the police found. While searching the nearby area and talking to passerbyers trying to find a witness to who might have dumped the body, investigators found another body. This body was also covered with the same chemical preservative as the body they had found the previous year, the Lady of the Lake. The body was that of an unidentified 40-year-old male and was also decapitated and emasculated the same as Edward Androzzi. This man, though, had been dead for at least a couple weeks, and unlike Androzzi, they were not able to identify him. Police came to the conclusion that he had been a transient worker that resided in Kingsbury Row. A few months had passed, and then on January 26th, 1936, a woman discovered half the body of a female neatly wrapped in newspaper and packed in two half-bushel baskets. 
The baskets were left alongside the Hart Manufacturing Building on Central Avenue, near East 20th Street. Everything except the head was recovered about 10 days later in a vacant lot on nearby Orange Avenue. And as in the case of Edward Andrazi, the cause of death had been decapitation. For some reason, however, the killer had waited for rigor mortis to set in before disarticulating the rest of the body. Fingerprints again would allow the identification of one Florence Palillo, waitress, barmaid, and sex worker. At the time of her death, she resided on East 32nd Street in Carnegie, right on the edge of the Roaring Third. Winter passed and summer came, and one morning two young boys discovered the head of a man. The head was wrapped in a pair of trousers near the East 55th Bridge. Police found the body of the 20-something-year-old man the next day dumped in front of the Nickel Plate Railroad Police Building, and again cleaned and drained of blood. The corpse was intact except for the head, and it was again determined the death had been caused by decapitation. In spite of a fresh set of fingerprints and the presence of six distinctive tattoos on various parts of the body, police were never able to identify the victim. A plaster reproduction of the man's head along with a diagram of the kind and location of the tattoos were made and put on display at the Great Lakes Exposition in 1936. More than 100,000 people saw the death mask and tattoo chart, but the tattooed man was never identified. Do you have a name? Do you have a piece of ID in your pocket? Would anyone search for you if you went missing? Would they know your face? The John and Jane Doe custom was born out of a strange and long-since-vanished British legal process called an action of ejectment. Under Old English common law, the actions landowners could take against squatters or defaulting tenants in court were often too technical and difficult to be of any use. So landlords would instead bring an action of ejectment on behalf of a fictitious tenant against another fictitious person who had allegedly evicted or ousted him. The names eventually became standard placeholders for unidentified, anonymous, or hypothetical parties to a court case. We name unidentified victims so they have the right to justice, to humanize them once more. On July 22, 1936, the sixth victim, an unidentified 40-year-old man, was found in the woods near Clinton Road. This man, though, had been dead for two months. The blood on the ground suggested, unlike the others, he'd been killed on sight. There was less premeditation in the actions of the unknown killer. The sixth victim was a crime of opportunity, a lapse in impulse control. But despite the lapse in judgment, there was still no evidence left at the scene for the police to start searching out persons of interest in the case. On September 10th, 1936, the seventh victim, an unidentified man, was found near the train tracks in Kingsbury Run. He had been decapitated, and by the coroner's observation, with only one stroke. This showed confidence and a knowledge of human anatomy. At this point, 
Many local papers were reporting this murder spree on a daily basis, and there were no suspects or clues. There was huge pressure on the investigating authorities and detectives Marillo and Zaleski, who were investigators on the case, interviewed more than 1,500 people on their own, looking for anyone who might have seen anything at any of the seven crime scenes. They even went so far as to dress as transient workers, spending days in Kingsbury Run and the Roaring Third, making friends and questioning people. On February 23, 1937, a man came across the upper half of a woman's torso washed up on the shore east of Brattonall. Unlike all previous victims, the cause of death had not been decapitation. Instead, she had been decapitated after she was already dead. The lower half of the torso washed ashore three months later at about East 30th Street. The woman was in her mid-twenties. She, like too many of the other victims, was also never identified. Then came June 5th, 1937, and a teenage boy discovered a human skull under the Lorne Carnegie Bridge. Next to it was a burlap sack containing the skeletal remains of what turned out to be a petite African-American woman, about 40 years old. Dental work allowed for the unofficial identification of one Rose Wallace of Scoville Avenue. Police followed every lead they had on her, but it led nowhere. On July 6, 1937, the 10th victim, an unidentified man in his mid to late 30s, was found. His heart had been ripped out and his abdomen had been gutted. This clearly indicated a new element of viciousness in the killer's approach. There were labor problems in the flats that summer and the National Guard had been called in to maintain order. A young guardsman standing watch by the West Third Bridge saw the first piece of the body in the wake of a tugboat. Over the next few days, police recovered the entire body, except for the head, all from the waters of the Cuyahoga River. In April of 1938, parts of the 11th victim, an unidentified woman, were also found in the Cuyahoga River. And a month later, police pulled two burlap bags out of the river containing both parts of the torso and most of the rest of both legs. This marked the first time a victim had been identified as having drugs in their system. Were the drugs used to immobilize the victim, or was she an addict? The answer might have been found if they had found the arms, but they never did, and the woman was also never identified. On August 16, 1938, the 12th and 13th victim, who were both unidentified as well, were found in the most reckless location yet. The bodies were found within view of Elliot Ness's office window, under a street lamp, laying on their backs on the ground, an obvious taunt directed at safety director Ness. Two days later, on August 18, 1938, at 12.40am, director Ness and a squad of 35 detectives and police raided Kingsbury Run's Hobo Jungle. They rounded up 63 men and searched their shacks looking for evidence. Then Ness ordered the shacks to be burnt. The people were then charged with being homeless, which was illegal at the time. And of course they all had to plead guilty. This was a cruel tactic. 
Ness's raid was intended to protect the transients, though. Ness wanted to eliminate the pool of potential victims, thinking that the killer targeted transients, which in part was true. He also wanted the transients' fingerprints, in case they were killed. The killings did stop after the raid. Though whether or not the raid had anything to do with that has never been determined. Ness's shiny reputation was damaged, and although investigators were no closer to identifying a victim, the case is considered by some to be unofficially solved, and the solution was reached partly by Elliot Ness himself. In the 1970s, it was discovered that Elliot Ness had a secret suspect. In fact, Ness was certain that he had found his man. Dr. Francis Sweeney was a surgeon and the cousin of a congressman. He fit the profile. Sweeney was an alcoholic with violent tendencies and mental illness ran in his family. He had been to probate court multiple times. Sweeney would disappear for days at a time before returning home to his family and he had started to neglect his medical practice. He also beat his wife and children. And after the 13th victim was found, Sweeney checked himself into a mental institution. And suspiciously, the killing stopped. He had originally been excluded as a possible suspect because he spent much of his time at the Sandusky Soldiers and Sailors Home, where doctors periodically checked in to dry out. Then, a man's severed leg was found near Sandusky, which is when Elliot Ness started to reevaluate him as the prime suspect. But because of his familial bonds with a congressman, Ness was quiet about his suspicions. In May 1938, Elliot Ness secretly apprehended Francis E. Sweeney and took him to the old Cleveland Hotel and kept him there for 10 to 15 days. Sweeney took three of those days to even sober up enough to answer questions. Miranda rights were not in place yet, but this was still in conflict with the rules of civil liberties at the time. The inventor of the modern polygraph test, Leonard Keeler, was called by Ness to administer a lie detector test in the hotel. Sweeney then promptly failed twice, and Keeler told Ness, that's your man. I might as well throw my machine out the window if I were to think anything different. Ness had to proceed carefully because, as I said before, Francis was a cousin of Congressman Martin L. Sweeney. Despite the revelations of the secret detainment, Sweeney was released, and less than three months later, the last two victims were placed in front of Ness's office. The taunt we mentioned before, and before you might have thought it to be a general attention-seeking act meant to taunt the police and Ness, but this was personal. It was meant just for Elliot. Unfortunately, although he thought he solved his case, Ness didn't think he had enough to take him to court. In 1938, Emil Fronick, a vagrant, told police that in 1934, a doctor had tried to drug him. He remembered the office was around East 50th and East 55th on Broadway Street. Unfortunately, when police drove Fronick up the street, they could not find a doctor's office, and the cops forgot about it. 
But 50 years later, case expert James Badal discovered that Francis Sweeney practiced out of a modest-looking building that closely resembled where Fronick said he had been drugged. This is where some believe Sweeney drugged his victims. How could Sweeney have carried out the murders in these offices without being caught? David Cowles, the leader of the Scientific Identification Bureau, who was interviewed in 1983, suggested that Sweeney may have had an agreement with an undertaker, that he could practice surgery on unclaimed bodies. And directly next door to Sweeney's office, conveniently enough, was a funeral home. The funeral home had a concrete ramp that led directly into the undertaking facilities. And this office and funeral home were within a short car distance from where the September 1935 victim was found, which was not far from the Roaring Third. Sweeney could have visited bars, luring people back to his office with the promise of free drugs and alcohol. In the 1950s, Ness received more taunts in the form of postcards from someone claiming to be Sweeney. And considering he was a secret suspect, it's logical to assume that it could be no one other than Sweeney. The contents of the postcards were mostly gibberish, making passing mentions of their encounters even if Ness were to bring these to court this many years later, they would mean nothing to a jury. And Ness knew this. And so did the sender, who was presumably Sweeney. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you'll know that I'm not as kind to the police as others. I'm constantly wondering whether their ethics and morals align with society's. Are they searching for the truth, or are they searching for order in the chaos? Truth may be too hard to find, while order must be maintained. But cases like this illustrate and illuminate the fact that sometimes neither can be achieved. The truth or order. The Cleveland Torso Killer case is unofficially classified as unsolved, and the murder stopped only through actions not of the police. Given different circumstances, they could have continued. I feel for law enforcement in these moments. The unresolved mind is a dangerous thing. Have you ever stayed up late, your mind racing with every question in your life, running in rapid succession? I can only imagine for Elliot Ness in 1930s Cleveland, for him, a law enforcement legend who'd known little else other than success, this would have been agonizing torture. And some think that his failure to bring Sweeney or whoever the Cleveland torso killer might have been to justice, that was the beginning of the end of the legend Elliot Ness, his sterling career, the final victim of the Butcher of Kingsbury Run. So, Creep, did you enjoy today's episode? If you did please subscribe and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. For each five-star review, I get one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. Tales by Cole is a weekly podcast and is released every Tuesday. If you don't want to miss a single episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to follow along on social media, 
You can follow me on Twitter at Tales by Cole and Instagram at Told by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound engineering and editing by Matt Black. And with that, I bid you adieu. Be safe, take care of one another, and don't forget to lock the door. <laughs>